And then we got there. We get to this place and it is literally a giant column of rock sticking out of a bunch of trees. And my friend decides at this particular moment to say, just to give you a little bit of forewarning, four people have died on this mountain. Just, just to let you know. To which I responded, that would have been good information to know like an hour ago before we got here. But as we begin to hike this mountain, it was a very steep incline, felt exhausting. We go up the trail and we get to the foot of this massive rock and I'm thinking, wow, that was, that was, pretty, that was pretty tough. And he says, okay, now we climb from here. I said, what? We didn't bring any rope. We didn't bring anything like that. No, this is just a free climb. You just climb all the way to the top. And after an hour and a half of pretty tough climbing, and me, who is slightly afraid of heights, got all the way to the top, we look out, and it is one of the most amazing views. Now, I know for myself, I wouldn't have had an easy time getting up that mountain without having my friend to tell me how to get there, to tell me what the plan was to get up that mountain. Now, there's more details than that, but we won't get labor on some of the embarrassing stuff that happened on that hike. But if we had the plan, you can accomplish much more than without it. Without knowing the path, I would have had to just try to figure that out, and we would have maybe gotten to the top, probably gotten to the top, but it would have been far more difficult. As Christians, isn't it a wonderful thing that we don't have to try to figure it out all by ourselves? That God has given us a path to follow. At the end of every single sermon that we preach, most of the time we hear the, the plan of salvation, if you will. The path that we've laid out, this is how you become a Christian, right? We hear that all the time. But do we really think sometimes as to how construed some of those steps are? But how much confusion there is around some of those points and how people make it far more difficult than it has to be simply because they don't actually look at what God said to do with each of them. This evening I would like us to consider one of those points in particular, specifically, what is Bible baptism? What is Bible baptism? Now, the world has a lot of different definitions. We can go and read different historical figures, different religious leaders, and we'll find a host of different definitions on what the word baptism means. Some say sprinkling, some say pouring, some say immersion, some say it's a spiritual indwelling from the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of different things that people have for this term. But we're not concerned tonight with what does everyone else say. We're trying to figure out what does the Bible say about baptism. And so we're going to notice a few particular points here. First, we're going to notice that Bible baptism is a necessity. Second, Bible baptism is an end. And third, Bible baptism is a beginning. Let's look, first of all, notice that point. Bible baptism is a necessity. It's a necessity. Probably one of the most common attitudes we'll hear from religious leaders in this world is that baptism is not essential to salvation. It's not something you have to worry about. You see, you have to make things right with the Lord, say the prayer, and you're good to go. Baptism is just an outward showing of an inward grace. Is that what the Bible says? Is that how God describes this point? 1 Peter 3.21, Peter writes, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Okay, so there's one verse. What about Acts 2.38, where Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What about when Jesus went to John? And John tells him, I have need to be baptized of thee, not the other way around, but 
Jesus saw it as a necessity. Because as we know, throughout Jesus' life, he was not going to do anything or command us to do anything he was not willing to do himself. He was setting the example for us. As we noted this morning, man was made imperfect in Genesis chapter 3 when man sinned against God. Man separated himself from God, and as a result of that, he was separated from the life that God offers. Now there was no remission of sins at that time. But in Genesis chapter 3, what promise was made? There would come a Savior. He would bruise the, he, the serpent would bruise the heel of this Son of Man, but the Son of Man would bruise the head of the serpent. The death blow would be made. And then the very first gospel sermon that we hear from a follower of Christ, from an apostle, an inspired apostle of Christ. Remember what was said in Acts chapter 1. Whenever Jesus was about to ascend back into heaven, what did he tell his disciples? There was going to come the Comforter. The Comforter was going to come and bring all things into remembrance. They were going to be teaching exactly what God wanted them to teach. Jesus wasn't going to be around anymore to teach it, to tell everyone exactly what was going to happen, so now it was the apostles' job to do so. And the very first thing we read about after Peter goes throughout the history, he describes what all's about to happen. He says, this is who's going to come. This is what was said in the Old Testament. This were the prophecies that were leading up to the Christ. The Christ came. He lived the life that was prophesied. He died on the cross. Now, what's your job? What's your job? When the application came, when Peter got to the end of his sermon, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, why would that be the case? Why is that the way that God established? Simply enough, it was the only way it could be. That was the only way it could be. We had to come to Christ through the means that He established. And as we read in Romans chapter 6 earlier for our scripture reading, we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead, what? Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus died and was buried. Now, Jesus was buried in the ground. He was buried in an actual tomb. When we are baptized into Christ, we're burying that old man of sin. We're saying we're putting to death that life I was living, and now I'm living a new life in Christ. It's a symbolic representation of that. It's an example that was said. But it is a necessity because we understand there is a need for salvation. We understand that need. You can go to anyone who believes in the Bible, almost anyone who believes in the Bible in some shape, form, or fashion, and they say they know there was sin that needed to be repented of. There needed to be a sacrifice made. Sin was going to lead mankind to destruction. Now what many people try to do is change the means of getting there. Change the means of getting to this salvation separate from what God had said. Imagine for a moment, if we had no other books, no other teachings, no other examples, no other religious leaders, no other denominations, no history of church philosophy, and we were just to hear Peter's sermon. Nothing else. Ignoring everything else. What would you think? That we need to repent and be baptized. We understand by Acts chapter 17, verse 30, that repentance was a necessary, or a necessary act as well. That before 
What did God say? Before he said that he was ignorant to this. But what did what happened next? We are to repent of our past sins, to change that path, to say, I'm no longer going to live this life in sin. I'm changing my mindset. That is the foremost part of repentance. See, oftentimes we think that I need to change my thought process, fix all of my actions, and then I can become a Christian. Well, that's not exactly true. Because if we could fix all of our own actions, then what's the point of Christ? When we're buried in Christ, all that guilt is washed away. Now, what we do from that point on, that's something different. That's not the same life we were living. It's a new creature. So the first thing we had to do was to change our thought process, to say, I'm not living for me. I'm not living for what the world offers anymore. I've decided I'm going to follow after Christ and whatever He says is what I do. Not what I want Him to say, not how I feel like He should do it, but I'm going to follow His path. See, we put aside who we were before. If you would, please look at Colossians chapter 3. That's Colossians chapter 3. Specifically, let's start in verse 8. He says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10, And have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Whether there is either Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, this is who you used to be. You used to be these things, but you need to set those aside in order to live this new life. If we claim to be a new creature, why do we allow the characteristics of the old man to be our defining features? If I'm a new person, then those actions should not be the driving force. Imagine what you would think of someone who came to you, and previously, let's say they were an alcoholic. You know every chance they had they were going to go into a bar, they were going to get drunk, and it was going to be the ugly kind. And he comes to you one day and says, I'm as sober as the day is long. I'm finally sober. But you watch him every night and he goes back into the bar. Is that a sober guy, do you think? He goes in, comes out drunk. Goes in, comes out drunk, but he says he's sober. But brethren, that's how so many people claim to be Christians. They say, I'm a Christian, I am liberated from the world, but I'm going to act like it every single day. I don't put aside those things that I did before. I embrace them, but now I get to go to church while I do it. <laughs> Are those the characteristics of someone who has changed their mind and following after Christ? Now, we're not talking about struggles. We're not talking about long-term temptations and the mistakes that we make. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those who that is their lifestyle. I'm still living exactly the same way I was. I'm not trying to change it. I'm not trying to improve it. I just have a different skin on it this time. See, baptism is a necessity because it washes those, that guilt, that shame, that fear away. But if I haven't changed my own heart, I can get wet and it don't do anything. I can be put in a tub of water and come up and nothing has changed. 
So yes, it's not just the act of baptism alone that saves. Yes, it is a penitent heart coming to Christ, being buried in baptism and raised to walk in that newness of life. That's what we're talking about. But why is this so important? Why should we care? There had to be a payment for sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we had earned. That's what was ascribed to all of us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, all of us were on the chopping block. All of us were facing that destruction. But the rest of 6.23 is what's encouraging. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And He offers that to people freely under the condition they follow after Him. Now, why is there a condition? Why couldn't God just say, all people get the gift of God. It's a wonderful thing. We all get to come to Him. Because that's not a just God. That's not a just God. Because a just God says sin has consequences. And if I allow you to sin without consequences, I am not just. I'm not just. But for a Christian... He doesn't just waive the consequences of sin. No, sin still has consequences. But I can be forgiven of the guilt. I can be forgiven of those long-term consequences if I turn back to Him, if I follow after Him. So this baptism, it is a means by which we can attain, by which we can come to Christ in the way that He has offered. It's as if He sat it on the chair in front of us and says, just come and take it. That's the way to come and take it. But we say, no, I want to stay seated and I want you to come get it and bring it to me. But Jesus says that's not the way that it works. That's not the way that that works because 1 John chapter 1 verse, let's believe it's 6. What fellowship has light and darkness? If we are engaging in sin, if we are living a life of sin, then we cannot be in relationship with God. See, that's the difference in what the world teaches versus what the Bible says. They like to say you can live a life of darkness and still have the light of Christ. Those two things can't go together. They can't be the same. Because one separates from the light of God. We talked about this morning in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. What did God say to the children of Israel? The Lord's hand is not short and that He cannot save, nor is ear heavy that He cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face that he will not hear. Friends, how can he hear someone who is in sin? How can he forgive someone who refuses to make it right? See, this is the interesting thing. The world loves to talk about forgiveness. The world loves to talk about acceptance. But even God can't forgive someone who won't make it right. God can't do that. Think about it for a moment. Imagine if the American justice system worked the exact same way that God works in these denominational teachings. That if someone comes to this judge and says, Judge, I'm a sinner. Waive my sentence. And he says, Okay. Where's the justice? What's to prevent someone else from doing that? 
See, God understands there's consequences for actions. Because think about it from this perspective. If God is willing to save sinners here on this earth, then he did the devil wrong. Because the devil was one of his angels. The devil was in heaven. But as a result of what he had done, he was removed from heaven. He was punished for his actions. But we think we're going to get better treatment. We think I'm better than that. It's a disturbing thought. It's a disturbing place to be when we think that he's just going to make it all okay. Now, for those who are Christians, those who are walking in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanseth us from all sins. We can stay faithful. We don't have to worry about it. Now, some people think that this teaching of we don't have to be baptized to be saved, and then once we accept Jesus into our heart, that we're perfectly fine from here till the end of time, that sounds comforting. It sounds good in, on paper. But when we take a deeper look, it's really not. It's not a good thing. Because it allows people to have false hope. False hope. We talked about this morning in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. What was the main point of that section that was disturbing? That these people thought they were following after Christ. They thought they were doing what was right. They had false hope. Because we cannot be taught wrong and obey right. We cannot have a false teaching, a false understanding of God and follow after that false understanding of God and it be the right path. But that's why He gave us His Word. That's why He gave us a way of understanding who He is. But the danger we fall into is when we glorify the man rather than the message. That we'll listen to all these teachers with all these degrees telling us exactly what the Bible says and they really haven't understood the message from the get-go. See, this was the same problem that the Jews fell into. They were listening to the educated men of their day. Now, education is not a bad thing. I'm not saying if someone gets up here with four letters after their name or 15 letters after their name that it's not going to be a good message. If they're teaching the truth, they're teaching the truth. However, it's not those numbers and letters after their name that tells us how valuable the message is. Because those people in the first century, when they were listening to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, those were men who should have known the book. They were educated men, educated in the message, educated in the old law. But they were flawed in their teaching. They were flawed in their message. And they rejected who God actually was. But as a result of their teaching, many people would think they were following after God, namely one Saul of Tarsus. Thought he was following after the Lord, doing exactly what he was supposed to do, but what was actually happening? He was following him incorrectly. And what did Jesus say when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. He says, when you're attacking my church, you're attacking me. 
Imagine what a blow that would have been to Saul. Here you see the man that you would have cheered at his death telling you you're attacking God. As a result of that, he made his life right. He turned away. Definitely not an easy thing for him to do. He had to give up his prestige. He had to give up his cushy job. He had to give up everything. He had to give up a peaceful life. Think about that. From the day he became a Christian to the end of Paul's life, he gave up an easy life. We think about the world around us today in the United States of America. In 2023, it seems like a pretty chaotic place, right? And we just kind of say, I just want a little bit of peace for a few moments. Can we go five minutes without some natural disaster, some plague, some war, some chaotic government scandal? Can we go five minutes without something? But think about the life that Paul lived. Paul might have wanted five minutes where someone wasn't trying to kill him. He may have wanted five minutes where someone would just listen to what he had to say. The truth is, we have lived a pretty easy life here. And as a result of that, oftentimes the simple things become complicated. The easy things become hard. Because rather than taking that ease and that time to train and to build ourselves up, we become lazy. We become lethargic. Friends, this is the time we need to know the book more than ever because we are getting to a point where people are done looking to the world for answers. We can look out in the world right now, and this might be a little bit of encouraging information. America is getting more religious. Did you know that? As a general rule of thumb, America is getting more religious. So who's going to be the one to teach these people who are coming to some understanding they're someone greater? Is it going to be us? Or will it be someone who doesn't actually know the book and will give them false hope? This is our time. This is our time to train. This is our time to prepare. As one preacher said on one occasion, he says, we are not on the wrong side of history. We're exactly where God wants us to be. So what will we do? Baptism is a necessity because that is the starting point. That is where we need to be. It's a necessity. It has to be done. It's not an if, and, or but. But more than that, baptism is also an end. An end of what? An end of what? It's an end of our past lives. Everything up to that moment, every single main point in our life is over. If before my goal was money, not anymore. If before my main goal was my comfort, not anymore. If my main goal was my family, not anymore. That sounds a little heartless, doesn't it? No. Because here's the funny thing. If we're following after Christ and Christ is our main focus, that'll benefit our families. <laughs> that'll benefit those around us. 
it'll give us comfort, not in the physical sense, but it'll give us peace of mind knowing where we're going afterwards. It's an end of the way we used to live. See, we cannot live in sin anymore and expect that to lead us to Christ. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We talked about that this morning. God forbid. He doesn't say that that's how that works. It's not as if God is following us around everywhere we go cleaning up our messes. But we come to Him for the cleansing we need. We come to Him because that is the only source. Nothing else. See, we must put aside those past actions, leave all of that life behind. As Paul told the Corinthian church, the Ephesian church, the Galatian church, this is who you used to be. He would point it out in detail. He said, this is who you used to be. But here's where you are now. So let's act like it. Let's act like who we're supposed to be. Now this can sound sometimes like a sore subject, does it not? Sometimes it can feel like, oh, getting beat over the head again. But the reality is that's not at all what this is. When Paul is teaching these things to these people, he's telling them this is who you used to be. That's not for him to say, hey, remember who you used to be? Yeah, you need to remember that and feel bad about it. No, what he's telling them is that's where you were. But now look how far you've come. Look how far you've come. You can keep going. Would we consider a coach to be a good coach if he just looked at everyone on his team and says, oh, great job, you can run five yards. You're exactly perfect where you are. We'd probably look at that and say, I think that coach needs to be replaced. We need a little bit more than five yards out of a player. Need a little bit more stamina. The coach doesn't push those players to bring them down or to lower their self-esteem he stays on them because he knows they can be greater than they are. He pushes them to keep going. In this baptism, it is an end of that life we used to live so that we can actually see who we can become. Sin prevents us from being exactly who God wants us to be. Sin is that preventative method. You see, the devil understands that he doesn't have to stop you entirely, he just has to slow you down. Because when we're slowed down, it becomes discouraging. It becomes easy to give up because the progress just isn't getting where we want it to be. I, I was talking to a friend of mine on one occasion, and we were talking about the road system, uh, the road system in Mississippi. If you've ever been to Mississippi, you know those roads are terrible. They're awful. Don's over here nodding. He understands exactly what I'm talking about. They're awful roads. And some of those roads, you'll just start driving down, you'll realize those workers gave up halfway through. <laughs> they were going, it was going to go well, and the first part of the road is awesome, it's brand new, and then the rest of it doesn't exist. Brethren, that can't be the works of the church. The works of the church can't be shiny and brand new at first and then die halfway through. God tells us these things. He reminds us of the sins of others and the mistakes of others, not to beat us over the head, but to tell us you can overcome. 
This is not who you have to be. See, the world likes to tell us that we just have to live exactly how we are and just be comfortable with that. God has never said that. God has never said that. We should never be happy with less than what we can be. I'm talking what we can genuinely be. We're not talking about if you're a C student that you have to be an A student. (laughs) But we give the best that we can. See, this baptism, it is an end. It's an end of all those past thoughts as well. The way that we used to think, the way that we used to act, the way that we used to behave, the way we used to prepare. Not anymore. Not anymore. See, we lay those things aside because we have a new goal in mind. We have a new mission. And that brings us to our last point. Baptism, yes, it's a necessity. It's something that has to be done because that's the only way we can end that past life of sin. That is the only weapon that can kill that old man of sin. But it's also a necessity because it's the beginning of the life in Christ. It's the beginning of that new life. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to remove all of that? It allows us to know that all those things that have been worrying us, all those things that were hurting us, it's not a part of us anymore. That guilt is washed away. Think about for a minute, if every single thing you regret in your life could be washed away, gone, it never happened. Sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Every time we jumped into or didn't get into a stock trade, we could go back and fix that, you know? The business that looked like it was going to be just some stupid thing that was going to fade out over time, now is a multi-million dollar, whatever. Go back and fix that. You don't have to regret it anymore. That time that you spoke to a person in an ugly tone, you could go back and fix that. I'm not saying that that's what baptism does, but it would feel nice, wouldn't it? See, what baptism does is it washes away the guilt of those things. The guilt of knowing that there were times that I was against God. Those times that I stood against His people. The times that I myself refused to listen to Him. All of that is no more. God says their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. There are so many people that are naming the name of Christ who have never been able to forget themselves. They continue to hold the sins over their own head. They say, how could God forgive me? I've done so much wrong. Have you done more than David? Have you done more than Saul? Have you done more than Peter? If God can forgive those people, what makes you so special? What makes you the exception to the rule that God can't forgive? See, when we're baptized into Christ and we are raised to walk that newness of life, hey, 
that doesn't matter anymore. That's not for us to dwell on. That's not for us to remember because God Himself won't do it. When we stand on the day of judgment, the only thing that's going to matter is what's on the record. What we actually see in front of us. I had a friend of mine tell me this illustration. It really has stuck with me over the years. He said an easy way to think about forgiveness, to think about how this actually works is, do you consider yourself to be a law-abiding citizen? I said, well, yeah, I consider myself to be a law-abiding citizen. He said, okay, how can you say that? And I said, well, I'm not in jail, first of all. <laughs> I don't have anything on my record. And he said, okay. Do you know people who have sped? Do you know people who have crossed the line? Well, yeah, I know some people who have done that. But they're still considered law-abiding citizens, right? Well, I said, yeah. He said, because it's not on their record. He said, can a judge wipe stuff off your record? I said, well, yeah, in the legal system, you can wipe stuff off your record under certain circumstances. He said, that's how God's forgiveness works. He says, up until the point you became a Christian, before you were baptized into Christ, you had the laundry list. You had everything you had ever done wrong, everything you had rejected God with. He said, when you became a Christian, that list was burned. That list was left behind, washed away, and he said, every time you make a new mistake, it's put on the list. You can wash it off. It's gone. He said, that's how God's forgiveness works. Not in the sense of every time I make a mistake, I'm, in, I'm saved, I'm lost, I'm saved, I'm lost, I'm saved, I'm lost. But if I turn my back on God, I start a new list. If I say I'm not following after Him anymore, that's a new list. But just like the first one, it can be washed away too. How? Because I became one of the Lord's children. I was a follower of Christ. And I can follow after Him and what He has said. See, it's the end of that old life and it's the beginning of a new one. One where I don't have to be worried about who I was before because that doesn't matter anymore. And I can keep on following after Him. So what is Bible baptism? If someone was to ask us what that actually meant, that's what we can tell them. We can tell them, yes, it's a necessity. It's something that has to be done for the forgiveness of sins. Washing away that old man of sin, raised to walk in newness of life. It's the end of that old man. It's the end of a life that was completely opposite to Christ. And it's the beginning of a new one following after him. There's many in the world who reject that message. Who say that's too hard or that's putting too much on us instead of God. I don't know if they're reading the same passages as I am, but I don't think I did any of that. I was baptized into Christ back in 2013. Since then, it hasn't been me who's making it all right. I'm sure you know the day, or you can remember that moment. It's not you that gets yourself to heaven. If you think it is, you probably are looking at a different book. 
We are simply doing what God has asked of us. You know how we can also talk about this? The good that we can do, how did God describe those? The good that I can do is as filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, to earn our place at God's side. He's just made the way available so that all have access to it. But this is the access point. This is the access point. Paul described in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Acts chapter 9, we read how he started that life. When Ananias comes to him and he says, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. See, Saul was looking for a way to be forgiven. He wanted that way out. He wanted to become a Christian. And Ananias gave him the opportunity. And Saul was baptized into Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And what a new life it was. I'm sure if someone were to see Saul and be friends with Saul and then see the Apostle Paul, they'd be like, what on earth happened? This is not the same guy I saw before. He changed his life. This message is not one that's just for lost. It's for us as well. To remember what we did and why we did it. To remember who we are. But more than that, to know what to tell others as well. Because there are those in the world who are looking. It may not always seem like it, but there are some in the world who are looking, who want to know. And we can tell them exactly what happened to us, what we did to be forgiven. This evening, maybe this is your first time understanding it. I would wager most of us in here probably have already done it. But maybe you've never named the name of Christ in this fashion. Maybe you were never baptized into Christ, never started that new life, never put that old man to death. His plan is simple. We must hear the word, Romans 10 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Upon hearing that word, we believe it to be true. John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And based upon that belief, that understanding of what God has actually said to do, the understanding of the necessity of His Word, knowing I can't put anything else in there, I can't just pretend that there's another way. We're willing to repent of all of our past sins. To change that mind, saying, I've been walking this way. I've been following after the world in any form. And it's time for me to turn and to follow after Christ. To follow after what His Word says, not what I thought before. According to Acts chapter 17, verse 30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That is our charge. And once we have started that process, once we've made that understanding, I'm going to follow after God and not after the world, we then confess His name. 
confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's exactly who he said he was. He is worthy of being followed, and his word is important. According to Romans 10, 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And based upon that confession, this is where we get to it. This is the same moment we see in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. We see the command in 1 Peter 3.21. All these moments, we can be baptized into Christ. Access that blood. Access the sacrifice that was made for you and for me out of obedient faith. And live a new life in Him. But maybe you already did that. Maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe you remember that day and you remember what it took to get there, but maybe you forgot the stipulations. Maybe you forgot what it meant to be a Christian, what it actually means to follow after Christ, what it means to bury that old man of sin. Maybe we spent a little too much time around the graveyard trying to dig him back up. He wants you to come home. He wants you to make that right this very evening, not to leave these doors worrying about your salvation but also not to leave these doors thinking we're okay when we're not. He's made that path available for us as well. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What will your choice be tonight? Will you continue as you have before? If that's following after Christ, awesome. Keep it up. But if it's following after the world, I'm not going to give you false hope from this pulpit. I'm not going to tell you that's okay. But you can make it right this very evening. You don't have to be afraid of what tomorrow holds. You don't have to be afraid when we talk about the eternity that we all will enjoy. But what will your choice be tonight? How will you respond to the Lord's message as together we stand and as we sing?